I invite you to turn your Bibles at this time to John chapter 17. We're going to be reading John 17, 20 through the end of the chapter, verses 20 through 26. This is our eighth and final sermon on prayer. We've been doing this in the mornings the last number of weeks. We studied the Lord's Prayer together, and now last week and this week, a couple of messages on what a lot of people call the real Lord's Prayer, John 17, because this is actually Jesus praying what we call the Lord's Prayer. A lot of folks call the Disciples' Prayer. We're the disciples, and he taught his disciples to pray like that. So we're in the, the real Lord's Prayer, actually Jesus praying uh, today again. John 17, the first five verses we read last week, that is Jesus praying for himself. Then verses 6 through 19, which we're skipping over, maybe we'll get back to it someday, that's Jesus praying for his disciples, the twelve. And then where we are, 20 through 26, is really Jesus praying for his disciples who would come to faith in later centuries. In other words, for us. And you'll catch that at the beginning here. John 17, beginning at verse 20, this is God's holy and infallible word. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That's God's word for us this morning. Brothers and sisters, A.C. Dixon wrote in his book on evangelism this, and I'm going to quote him. When we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do, and so on. I certainly don't want to undervalue any of these things in their proper place, but when we rely upon prayer, we get what God can do. I hope you've seen that, and I hope that these sermons in these last weeks have encouraged your prayer life, because truly, prayer is the lifeblood of the Christian. If you want to run on fumes, barely get by in life, then don't pray. But if you want to grow, if you want to thrive, if you want to be full of the Holy Spirit, pray, pray individually, as households, together, as families. And prayer is the lifeblood of the mission of the church. If a church thrives, if a church 
is serving those in need faithfully, if people are turning to the Lord, if people are growing in Christian maturity, if if people are responding to God's word, if the lost are being reached, that's because of God's help, and it's because the members of that church have dedicated themselves to be people of fervent prayer. People praying for their pastors, praying for the leadership of the church, praying for one another, praying that God would do something in our midst. If we want to be a church that thrives, if we want to be, we talk about successful churches, we don't want to be successful in the world's eyes. We don't want to have success as men and women define it, but we do want to be successful We want to be successful in all the ways that God wants us to be successful. And in order to do that, we're called to pray. Remember Lord's Day Lesson 45 from the Heidelberg Bible Study Series? God gives his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who ask for these gifts. Strong statement. But it's a summary of what the Bible says about prayer. Remember that in this church. Remember that in your own life. Remember that for your family. God gives his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who ask for these gifts. And the flip side of that is when you ask him, when you pray, he gives you his grace and his Holy Spirit. We're ending this series today with this very ending of John 17. This is the time of year to be giving and receiving gifts. And that's going to happen for sure in, the, in a couple of weeks. Remember last week we saw in those first couple of verses of John 17, we looked at three gifts that the Father gave to his Son. A people, power and authority, and a purpose. Now, the last verses of this chapter, as I said, this is Jesus praying for us for the church, for those who would believe down the centuries. And we find, again, gifts, three gifts, this time to us, gifts for the church, three precious gifts for us. The first gift is the gift of unity. And we see that in the first several verses, verses 20 to 23. The gift of unity. When the world looks at the church world, and even when we do as believers, we see so many different churches, huh? so many uh, denominations, and we wonder, how is this possible, this unity thing? And is it really true that God has given us this gift? I mean, in Chicago alone, there's so many different types of churches. Shouldn't we all be together? Shouldn't we be part of one denomination or something if we've been given the gift of unity? Where is the evidence of this gift today? Where's the evidence of this first gift, the gift of unity? Well, for one, I want to tell you a couple things that this unity is not and then go to what it is. For one, we have to look beyond organizational unity. We look beyond organizational unity. That's not necessarily what Jesus was after. Though I do think where it's possible, we should seek to be one organizationally with other Christians. But true unity does not necessarily mean organizational unity. That's been tried. There's, that's 
we've seen that, but it doesn't always work. Back in the Middle Ages, many hundreds of years ago, there was literally one church that covered all of Europe. But that was not a great age for the church. There were many, many problems. One of the biggest was that there was much corruption in this one church. And all the evidence tells us that it was not a time of great belief in Jesus. And that's what Jesus is praying for here, that, that we would believe in him. So organizational unity is not necessarily what we need. It's not necessarily what we need to be looking for. Also, this unity shouldn't be mistaken for conformity. It doesn't necessarily mean conformity. Unity doesn't mean that all Christians will act and think the same. In fact, this is putting it a little strongly, but in fact, almost the opposite is true, that we would all think and act the same. There should be great diversity among believers and God's people. Just as God created his world, his creation, his people with great diversity. So we don't look for unity in the sense of being around people who are all just like me, who all have the same sort of preferences I do, who think exactly like me. If someone is looking for that in the church, they're going to be disappointed because they'll never find it. That might be something to find more maybe in a political party or some sort of club, but not the church. The fact is, heaven is going to have the greatest amount of diversity that you could ever imagine as all tribes and tongues are represented there. Great diversity. And the Apostle Paul says that just as the body is made up of many parts, and just as our body has many differing functions, so does the church. The people of God, in other words, are made up of many different parts, have many differing functions. But yet, we read it, Jesus does pray that all of them may be one and that they may be brought to complete unity in verse 21 and verse 23. So there is unity. The question is, what kind? What kind? Well, it's not some warm, fuzzy, cozy feeling. It's not thinking, let's all be together just for the sake of being together. A foundational principle for true biblical unity, unity for the church, is that it's always around the truth. Though there may be diversity, there is unity. There is unity, and it's around the truth. Jesus says in this chapter, a little bit earlier, we didn't read this verse, 17, he says, sanctify them, sanctify your people by your truth. And he says, your word is truth. And then we have to ask, well, what is truth? What is truth? It leads to another question. Well, real truth, when it comes down to it, is this. It's Jesus himself. That's how you define truth. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So biblical unity is not just around anything. Biblical unity is in the truth. And that's basically the same thing as saying that unity is in Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer writes this. 
Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically all tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, he says, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, those 100 worshipers are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly ever be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive towards closer fellowship. So what is unity? It's about Jesus. It's unity around him. It's in him. It's looking to him. A divided church or a Christian who maybe is separated from the church or other Christians is almost certainly not close to Jesus or not looking to him. It's as simple as that. But when we look to Jesus together, when we are close to him in our lives, we're one. And that's when we'll enjoy all of the great blessings of true unity as Jesus prays for and as Jesus gives to us. That's the first gift. The second one is the gift of love. And that's in verse 23, 25, and 26. It's definitely love for each other, for sure. And that goes along with the unity we're talking about. When we're one, we're going to love each other. But even before that, and the Bible talks about that many, many times, but before that and foundational to us loving each other is the gift of the Father's love for us. And that love is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. And I don't know if you caught it. I didn't catch it in my first couple read-throughs of these verses. But I want to take you to verse 23 to see how truly, truly amazing, incredible the Father's love is. Jesus prays, may they know that you have loved them, he's talking to God, as you have loved me. Do you see what that verse is saying? It's saying that God loves us even as he loves Jesus Christ. That's incredible. And there's no way of getting around it. The meaning is very, very clear. There's a little Greek word called kathos, and it means just as, to the same degree that. Think about if, if there was someone that you knew, maybe in your small group or a Bible study or talking in the fellowship hall, think how arrogant you would find someone who says, who claimed and said, you know, God loves us as much as he loves his only begotten son, Jesus. Wouldn't you find that an arrogant thing to say? Except the Bible says he does love us that much. It says it right there. That's not arrogant. It's biblical. God's love is so full and perfect and amazing and so infinite. Our love is very finite. It's very imperfect. We love our friends more than people who aren't our friends. 
Uh, We usually at least love our family more than our friends. And even then, we can love certain family members more than others. All of us can't help but love people more who are nice to us or people who are kind of just naturally more lovable. We tend to love people more who are like us and who like the same things that we do. But God's love is so much more. God loves people who were enemies of his. That's how unlovable we were. That's what the Bible says we all are without Jesus. Enemies of God. But God loves us. And he has no favorites. He loves us His adopted children were adopted into his family, the Bible says, all perfectly with the same amazing love as his own son. And he loves you no matter what your background is, no matter how wretched your sins are, no matter how unlovable a person you might be. Does God really love us as much as that little verse says? He does. He does. That's confirmed in the Bible in a lot of ways. A verse like John 3.16 tells us he does. Because he gave the supreme gift, his son, to die on Calvary. Because he sent his son at Christmas. That's the concrete demonstration of his love. We know he loves us because the love is a lot more than words on the page. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We know that that sentence is true because Jesus was sent by God. We celebrate that this time of year. We celebrate it at Christmas. We celebrate it, and we can celebrate it every day of our lives when we accept that love and receive that love and when we share that love with others, the love of the Father, when we share it with the world. There's one more gift that I want to share with you, and that final gift is the gift of communion or fellowship with Jesus now and forever. We talk about the Lord's Supper. We call it communion, too, sometimes. Communion literally means union with. And Jesus prays that in verse 24. I want those you have given me, those you have given me. That's the gift we talked about last week, right? The gift of a people. I want my people, he says, to be with me. In verse 21, may they be in us. In verse 23, I in them. And that's the point of Jesus coming, that we would be with him. Emmanuel, it means God with us. The point, the gift, is that we would have fellowship with Jesus. We would have fellowship, a close relationship with, communion with the one who loves us with that perfect incredible, really mind-blowing love that we just talked about. So unity, love, communion. 
these three gifts for us, for the church. Treat these gifts as precious, very precious. Our Father wants us to do that. We don't always do that. Sometimes we're like uh, the little boy or the little girl who gets a gift, a present, and breaks it the very next day or loses it somewhere. And no parent likes to see their little boy or girl do that. We want to see our children value the gifts we give them. We want to see them value the money and the time and the effort that went into purchasing that special gift for them. Well, the cost of these gifts for God's people, for you and me, was no less than the sacrifice of Jesus. So don't treat the gifts lightly. They're so precious. They're so precious. Why does Paul, in his letters in the New Testament, call for unity all the time? Unity, 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 not division. He says it again and again. It's so important that we call unity an attribute of the church, part of the core definition of the church. That's how important it is in God's Word. And yet some people take it very lightly. Some people in this world actually try to disrupt the unity of the church. That can happen. People like that need to be avoided at all costs. Run away from people or conversations that are divisive. God's church has to be protected against people who are careless with his gifts. We hear that call to unity again and again because it's so precious. Thinking of of this place, our church, we're so blessed over the years to have a unified church. That doesn't happen all the time. That doesn't happen all the time. Cherish that. Cherish it. It's a precious, precious gift. Why do we hear in the Bible about love again and again and again? Loving God, loving others. Well, it's because love is an attribute of God. It defines Him. We read God is love. But it's, it's because that gift is so precious that God has given us. And He wants us to know how precious it is. He wants us to treat it that way. Why do we hear in the Bible so much about communion with God, communion with Christ, being near Jesus, having a close walk with Him? Well, it's because it's such a precious, precious gift to you and to me from our Heavenly Father. Maybe you need to unwrap these gifts this Christmas season again. Maybe you need to unwrap these gifts for the very first time. If either of those are true of you today, I would be more than happy to talk with you and pray with you after the worship service. I know Reverend Laird would be as well. We'll be in the back. There'll be elders in the back. Any one of us would be happy to talk to you about these gifts of God for us. Whether you want to recommit to them or whether you want to accept them 
for the first time and understand what that's all about. Now we're moving shortly in our worship service to communion, the Lord's Supper. And you know what this is, and I want you to think about this today. This is a time for God's people to celebrate these special gifts. The gifts of unity and love and communion. One loaf, one cup, one Lord, one baptism. God loved us so much that he sent and he offered his son. Jesus washed the disciples' feet and he tells us he did that when he instituted the supper. You remember that? And he did that to tell us to love one another. And in the supper, we have communion. We have fellowship with Christ, with the church throughout the ages. And we do it until that great communion service in paradise when we will be fully and perfectly united with each other and will be with the precious one, Jesus, who loves us so much. Cherish these three gifts we talked about today. Celebrate them. They are part of the very fabric of our salvation. May they define your life. Share the gifts with everyone around you here and beyond it into the world. Amen.